Our topic for the last three weeks has been the providence of God. And before I pray with you and share a little story by way of introduction, I want to define it again by using the Heidelberg Catechism, which is, I think, one of the most uh, attractive definitions I know of. Providence of God is the almighty... I don't think we need it quite that dark, Bob, because this is such a powerful bulb. I like to be able to see them a little better. Thanks. The almighty and everywhere present power of God, whereby, as it were, by his hand, he still upholds heaven and earth with all creatures. So there's an upholding dimension that we've talked about. And so governs them, all creatures, that herbs and grass, rain and drought, fruitful and barren years, meat and drink, health and sickness. You can let that sink in. Riches and poverty, yea, all things come not by chance, but by his fatherly an awesome statement, absolutely awesome. To believe that changes everything in your life. To believe that changes everything. It's not easy to believe at times. It's not easy. And that's why we're talking about it, because I, I want you to believe it because of how biblical it is and how much strength comes into our lives when we are able to believe it. Now, um, if you ask the question, who talks about the providence of God? Who, who thinks about these things? You probably think, well, theologians do, or pastors do, or professional Christians do. But you know who really talks about providence the most? Missionaries talk about the providence of God the most. This is a little book called God, You, and that man with three goats. Compiled by Don and Vera Hillis, who I met down in Bryan College last August when I was speaking to the team missionaries, and they are team missionaries, and they put this little book together. And uh, the man with three goats refers to a person in... 1 Samuel 10, whom Saul says he would meet. He says, when you leave here, so Samuel anoints Saul to be the king of Israel. And, and Saul gets ready to leave, and he lists off for him about 10 things that are going to happen to him in the next several hours. And one of them is, you are going to meet a man with three goats. In other words, God is so much in charge of these next several hours that he tells him ten things that are going to happen as detailed as you will go to this tree and a man will come and he will have three goats with him. So that's why the title is called that. And all this book is is a collection of uh, 
stories about the providence of God. The subtitle is Inspiring True Life Experiences of Divine Providence. And I'm going to read you part of the first one. And uh, not the first one, but it's by Helen Rosevere. And most of you probably have heard that name. She was a missionary uh, in Congo in the 50s and 60s and endured a tremendous amount of suffering, was raped by the soldiers that took over her compound. She's been here at Bethlehem, spoken at, at uh, missions at the manse. And she wrote this one called uh, A Providing Providence. She was a doctor. She'd been there four years. She was dealing with leprosy as of recent months. And uh, she had a cook named Onzio. And uh, they ordered some leprosy medicine. And that's where the story picks up. Eventually, the box of supplies arrived. Together with Onzio, I opened it. He excitedly drew out the large bottle of 10,000 tablets of the new Dapsone drug that had just replaced the painful injections of uh, Chalmugra oil in the treatment of leprosy. I picked up the bill, 4,320 Belgian Congo francs in 1954, worth 30 British pounds or about $90 in America. Somewhat caustically, perhaps, I reminded God that I had not 50 pence available for paying the bill, let alone 30 pounds, and as he, almighty God, had led me to start this particular clinic for the treatment of leprosy patients, I was sure he would pay the bill, which I thereupon slipped into my Bible. The end of the month came. Mission rules demanded that all bills be paid by the end of the month, so debts were, no debts were allowed. There was no money available to meet this bill of 30 pounds, 50 pence, none. There were no funds from which I could borrow. I felt cornered. What had God, why had God not provided? Such a sum would be nothing to him. It was the price of a cow, perhaps, but it was a fortune to me, three or four months' allowance in those days. I went to work that Saturday morning, the first of the new month, with a sense of grievance against God. I returned home at lunchtime. Onzio encouraged me to hurry, saying there was a brown envelope waiting for me. Another missionary had sent it across, apologizing that he had received it in his mail the previous day and had not noticed that it was addressed to me from our field leader's office. Onzio and I opened it together. I shook out the money, which he carefully piled and laboriously counted. I pulled out the statement total at the bottom right-hand corner. It came to 4,800 Belgium Congo francs. I did a mental calculation and showed the tithe. This is a very sub-point. She, she tithes of all the gifts we send her as tithes. <laughs> missionaries tithe, I'll bet, at a higher percentage than most people who support missionaries. So she, she calculated, that's 480 out of 4,800, leaving exactly uh, 4,320 francs. This total, which was exactly the bill for the pills, this total was made up of, here's the remarkable part, 
This total was made up of three gifts from an unknown couple in North America, two prayer partners in Northern Ireland, and a Girls Crusaders Union class in Southeast England. The North American gift had been on the way some four months, transferred from our Philadelphia office to the London office, from the London to Brussels and Brussels to Leopoldville, Kinshasa, and today, and finally, upcountry from Leopoldville to Paulus. Every transfer involved a certain percentage cost that was deducted. At the end, the three gifts had arrived together to make the exact sum needed, and the two gifts were designated for your leprosy work, and I did not have a leprosy work when the money was actually given, and it arrived on the last day of the month. Now, there are a lot of theological puzzlements about that story, as there are others in this book. Um, the Lord put it in the hearts of three groups, one in Northern Ireland, one in America, and one in England, to come up with the amount of money to send and when to send it. And he, at each point in Philadelphia and Brussels and London and Leopoldville, took some money out. And he ordained how much would come out. This is Providence. And he timed the post so that she would have enough time to complain and her faith would be tested and it would arrive on the day and he probably ordained that the person who got it didn't give it to him on the day that she needed it but kept it one more day to push her to the limit of faith. And uh, the prayer that had been prayed for this was prayed after its answer. That's the theologically provocative part. And there's so many stories to that effect in here, namely that um, the prayer, there's another amazing story in here. I think I'll order some of these for you so you can have them, just little stories about God's providence told not by theologians but by people who experience the providence of God in remarkable ways, both painfully and gloriously helpfully. Um, God, God ordains prayers. Prayer, you see, if you believe in the providence of God, you can't box it in, and you can't say, well, it applies to this little piece of life, and this part of life is out of his control. This he controls, this he doesn't, this he controls, this he doesn't, as though half the universe is, is, is running wild, and the other half is nicely under God's management. That simply is, won't work. And one of, the, one of the elements of reality that you can't take out of the box of providence is prayer. You can't say answers are under God's providence, prayers are not under God's providence. <laughs> and illustrations like this show you that you can't do that because the prayer, which was being made for about 29 days, was being answered four months earlier. And God, therefore, set it up so that prayers would be prayed for an answer he had ordained so it would be plain that he's involved in history. Your prayers are not made willy-nilly. They're not made willy-nilly. They come from a spirit that is governed by the Lord. 
Lord, as we tackle now some new parts of providence tonight, I bless you for them. I just thank you for providence. I thank you for your rule over our lives in all the painful things and in all the pleasant things. I thank you that the universe is not running out of control downhill with you wringing your hands at the top wondering where it's going to crash. And I bless you, God, that you rule it all with fatherly care for your children and that everything from the most painful cancer and the most deformed baby and the most pleasant vacation all is working together for the good of your people and for the glory of your name. And I ask, Father, that our faith in this biblical teaching would grow insofar as we see it taught in your holy word, because it is the word that gives rise to a well-grounded faith. Do it now, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Some of you have asked if the overheads that I have here are available to you, and the answer is yes and they'll be formatted like this, and they are in the file cabinets outside the church office on the second floor. Anything you see on the overhead you can get, so you don't need to you know, write things down that you see up here. And they'll be found under a folder called BITC. Right? Plenary session, BITC. So as long as this class is going on, that folder will be there, and you can get them and uh, study them on your own if we went too fast. Now, I have two agendas tonight, and they're only related because they both come under the topic of providence, and it's because we didn't finish one of them last time, and I think we'll spend about, I don't know, 25, 30 minutes on the first one on original sin, and and then we're going to shift over and talk about God's providence in the weather, uh, mainly. Or the big topic is his providence in inanimate objects inanimate objects. And then next time we'll talk about his providence in animals and human behavior. But when you stop to think of the implications of wind and rain and lightning and thunder on human life and its preservation and destruction, you have to come to terms with the providence of God. It's some pretty glorious and painful places. Okay, that's the agenda. Now, the first 30 minutes are really hard. I almost chucked this. I almost said, this is not, this is too complicated, this is too stretching, but I put all the work into preparing it and couldn't bring myself to drop it. So, we're going to look at it, and if you're just scratching your head and saying, this is, this is so far out of my ballpark that I shouldn't even have come, Hold it, because when I get to weather, it'll be more relevant and more plain. Okay, so hang on. First thing I want to do is just go to one text to refresh your memory about the doctrine of original sin. We spent a whole hour on this two weeks ago, and uh, I believe the doctrine of original sin is true because it's taught in Scripture, and here's a key text. We looked at six or seven, but let's just read this one from Romans 5. If by the transgression of the one, this is Adam, death reigned through the one, 
So through Adam's sin, death came into the world. Much more, those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. So then, as through one transgression, that's the eating of the forbidden fruit, there resulted condemnation to all men. That's the doctrine of original sin. And it's very offensive to our minds unless we are very, very submissive to Scripture and to the Lord that we should be implicated in Adam's sin. Even so, through one act of righteousness, there resulted in justification of life to all men. This all men, I think, referring to all who are in Christ, just as this all refers to all who were in Adam. Two humanities. One humanity that grows out from Jesus Christ, another humanity that grows out from Adam. For as through the one man's disobedience, there it is again, it's the same thing as this transgression here, through the one man's disobedience, the many, instead of all now, many, which helps us because this, I think, does not mean that everyone will be saved. That wouldn't fit with a lot of the rest of Scripture. Man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. That's the Greek word, constituted sinners. Even so, through the obedience of the one, Jesus, the many will be made righteous. So, before you jettison, throw out the doctrine of original sin, realize that the, the most profound writer of the New Testament is stating it, and he's stating it as a corollary of your justification. So if you like it that the righteousness of Christ can be imputed to you, realize that for Paul, that is coordinate with your, the, the, the sinfulness of Adam being accorded to you. And if you call into question the one, it just might result in jeopardizing the other which you love and on which your whole life hangs. My life hangs on the righteousness of Christ. I have nothing to commend me to God except the righteousness of Jesus which is imputed to me through faith. And so be careful here and don't quickly say, oh, this is not fair, this is unrighteous, you can't have such a doctrine as to say that because one man sinned, condemnation came to all, or because one man was disobedient, many were made sinners. That's what the Bible teaches. All right. Now that we talked about for an hour. I don't want to dwell on that, that it's there in the Bible. What I want to do is introduce you to one man's effort to see its righteousness. Now, not all theologians undertake this sort of thing because it... It uh, is difficult, and uh, some things we just have to accept in spite of profound mysteries. The man is Jonathan Edwards, and I'm just going to read a bunch of quotes. I'm going to read them slowly. I'm going to make some comments, and uh, this is the hard part. 
This is my introductory paragraph here. The inheritance of Adam's sinfulness and guilt by all human beings is an act of God's providence. He ordained that it be so. He, he set things up so that when Adam fell, that fall would be our fall and our sinfulness, and we would come into the world with a sinful nature, and the first thing we can do as a, a child is to rebel against God and many other things. The inheritance of Adam's sinfulness and guilt by all human beings is an act of providence, God's providence. Whether it is just for God to subject all to Adam's condition of sin and consequent guilt depends on whether God has the creator, sustainer, all-wise governor, not has, as, whether God as the creator, sustainer, all-wise governor and owner of humanity has the wisdom and the right to establish a kind of unity between Adam and his posterity which results in Adam's original sin truly belonging to successive generations. That's, that's what needs to be the case for God to be just. Can he, has he, found a way to establish a unity, a kind of unity that we may not even be able at this point to conceive of between Adam and me such that when he sinned, I sinned, and when he was guilty, I became guilty, and when he became a, a sinner prone to sin, I was born prone to sin. Can God do that such that there's real guilt here for which I, I have a real conscience problem with and will at the judgment day yield to as my own guilt. Is that possible? Now, here's Edwards' attempt to answer that question. We are united to Adam as branches to the root of one tree. So he starts to develop some analogies here. The derivation of the evil disposition to Adam's posterity. Now, that's awkward grammar. We don't talk like that anymore. This means toward or into. And this, we don't use derivation. He's using derivation in the... How are we going to paraphrase this? The, the, uh, the putting of, of the evil disposition of Adam into his posterity. That's what it means. Or rather, the coexistence of the evil disposition implied in Adam's first rebellion in the root and branches. Coexistence in Adam and in, uh, he's the root and we're the branches. The coexistence of the evil disposition in root and branch, Adam and us, is a consequence of the union that the all-wise author of the world has established between Adam and his posterity. So he's just asserting that what I just said would need to be the case. He's saying it is the case, that there is a union between the root, Adam, and the branch, which accounts for the evil disposition of Adam being our evil disposition, just like what is the condition of a root and the condition of a branch go together. Next quote. The first arising or existing of that evil disposition in the heart of Adam was by God's permission. Who could have prevented it? Now, I'm not going to, I think later on we're going to deal with the origin of sin. That's not my point tonight. Where did sin come from? 
why did Lucifer sin in the first place so that he winds up in this serpent form in the garden? Why did Adam created good yield to the temptation? Those are questions I'm not posing tonight, but those are important questions that we'll, we'll get to. His point is simply to, to state that God permitted it and he could have prevented it, and therefore he ordained it. That there be sin was God's plan. That he sinned is not the case. We must make the distinction between ordaining that something be and doing that something as a guilty participant. And that's a hard distinction to make, but the Bible clearly makes it in numerous places. So he's asserting that that's the case here. Who could have he could have prevented Adam's fall if he had pleased by giving such influences of his spirit as would have been absolutely effectual to hinder it, which he has done with all the elect angels. Which it is plain fact he did withhold. So he didn't he didn't prevent the fall. He withheld those irresistible influences. So root and branches being one, according to God's wise constitution, the case in fact is that by virtue of this oneness, answerable changes or effects through all the branches, that's us, coexist with the changes in the root. So when he became a sinner, the branches became sinners. Consequently, an evil disposition exists in the hearts of Adam's posterity equivalent to that which was exerted in his own heart when he did eat the forbidden fruit. So he hasn't argued yet. He's just stating what he sees to be the case in Scripture. And, and I, I agree with everything I've read so far there. If you have a question, hang on to it, because if, if we uh, break into the flow here, it might be difficult to keep our focus. But I will stop and ask, let you ask questions in, in a few minutes. Now, he, he gives a warning here about the limits of our understanding. If God orders the consequences of Adam's sin with regard to his posterity's welfare to be the same with the consequences to Adam himself, then he treats Adam and his posterity as one in that affair. In other words, if the doctrine is there in the Bible and it's so that God did it, he treated them as one, he sinned and they became sinners. Um, hence, however, the matter be attended with difficulty, fact obliges us to get over it. <laughs> That's how seriously he takes the Bible. I, I, you know what makes profound theologians? A radical commitment to Scripture so that they will not let it go. They, they won't say, I can't believe that. And once you say you can't believe it, you have to work on it anymore. Superficial theologians are created by people who, who, who just delete sentences out of the Bible that are too hard to understand and say that, that's just not possible. And so they scrap it. And so their job is just a lot easier and they don't go as deep as theologians who have to come to terms with lots of things in the Bible that look like they're in tension with one another. And this looks like it's in tension with the justice of God. So he says, fact obliges us to get over our problem, either by finding out some solution, and he's, he's, he goes as far as anybody I know who tries, whether he succeeds, you'll have to judge, or by shutting our mouths. 
which is what Sarah Edwards did when God took her husband at age 54, a month after he became the president of Princeton, because of a backfired smallpox inoculation. You know, all the what-ifs. Why did he take it? Why, why did God let him take this experimental medicine? It killed him. And she said, let us put our hands upon our mouths. That was her words. Let us put our hands upon our mouths. And acknowledging the weakness and scantiness of our understanding, weakness and scantiness of our understanding, as we must in other innumerable cases. <laughs> Anybody that gets the impression that Jonathan Edwards solved all problems isn't reading Edwards. This is innumerable cases, Edwards says, I put my hand on my mouth when I read the Bible. Where apparent and undeniable fact in God's works of creation and providence is attended with events and circumstances, the man and reason of which is difficult to our understandings. All right. Now, let's see how he goes about trying to account for this. Some illustrations from the material world, and then we'll have some illustrations from the personal world of consciousness. A tree grown great and a hundred years old is one plant with the sprout that first came out of the ground from whence it grew. Though it is now so exceeding diverse or different, from many thousand times bigger and of a very different form. Now keep in your mind, he's trying to account for the unity between Adam and the whole human race, okay? And what that might imply for original sin. And a very different form and perhaps not one atom. This is amazing. And he, he, this is 250 years ago. It sounds like he's talking with a great deal of contemporary um, physics in his head. Not one atom, the very same. That's a remarkable observation that, that there probably is not one similar atom left in the oak tree that there was in the acorn. Because of the way fluff off and the way sun works and juices that come up out of the ground and the way cells work. and That's probably a true statement. I don't know for sure. Irv should tell us. Um, yet God, according to an established law of nature, has in a constant succession communicated to it many of the same qualities and most important properties as if it were one. As if it were one. So he's saying it is God is treating acorn and oak as one, as one, or sprout and big elm tree. But then he uses the word as if it were because he knows there's not possibly, probably not one atom that's still the same. This is very important. He's saying we, we count it as one and probably things that were true in their most essential properties in that little sprout are still true in that big elm tree, even though there was, in a sense, a total break in the development. No atoms left that were there before. It's just all so slow. It has been his pleasure, God's pleasure, to constitute a union in these respects and for these purposes naturally leading us to look upon all as one. Okay, that's his first analogy, a tree. A couple more. Three more or so. The body of man. So the body of man at 
40 years of age, is one with the infant body which first came into the world from whence it grew, though now constituted of different substance, same point, and the greater part of the substance probably changed scores if not hundreds of times. And though it be now in so many respects exceeding diverse or different, yet God, according to the course of nature, which he has been pleased to establish, has caused that in a certain method or way, it should communicate with that infantile body in the same life, the same senses, the same features, and many of the same qualities, and in union with the same soul. And so, with regard to these purposes, it is dealt with by God as one body. So he's saying, even though the infant and the 40-year-old man might have undergone hundreds of substance changes in what composes the body, such that what was there has not there anymore, and yet the features of sense and certain nose and, you know, are still there that God wills that we regard this as one union. And we do. We don't even raise any question about it, even though there's that much diversity between the two. Now, this is a little more to, point, to the point. Consciousness, the human consciousness over time. Identity of consciousness depends wholly on a law of nature, and so on the sovereign will and agency or providence of God. And therefore, that personal identity, and so the derivation of the pollution of guilt, of past sins, in the same person, depends on an arbitrary divine constitution. That's one of the most important and most difficult sentences. By identity here, he means the, the unity over time of your consciousness, from yesterday to today, or from ten years ago to today, that unity is wholly dependent on the sovereign will or agency of God or an arbitrary divine constitution. God wills that there be a continuity between the consciousness you had days ago and the consciousness you have today such that the guilt of sins that you committed ten days ago or ten years ago are yours today, apart from forgiveness. So that the you that's today is only united to that you of yesterday by a divine arbitrary constitution. And yet the guilt is transferred from the you of yesterday to the you of today. Now, you already now see the answer that he's going toward. Okay? I mean, if you're, if you're with me, if you're with him, you can tell what he's going to do with Adam and us. That there's a divine and arbitrary unity there between him and us that is solely dependent on his arbitrary constitution. And if we're to allow ourselves to be guilty today for sins we committed yesterday, when the unity between me and myself yesterday is only owing to a divine and arbitrary thing, then maybe we should allow our guilt also to stand in Adam, or his and us, when the union there is totally constituted by a divine and arbitrary union. I, I just gave you the whole thing. But let's just keep reading because it'll, it'll help. Um, I'll skip that note because I think that's what I was just saying. Um, 
to see him say it. God's sustaining providence, sustaining providence, holding you in being and holding your conscious personhood in being right now. You are only the person right now that you were five minutes ago because God ordained it so and held you in being. You'd just right out of existence if God didn't do it. And he says that's equivalent to continued creation out of nothing. Let's see how he says that. God's preserving of created things in being, holding you in being right now, your existence, is perfectly equivalent to continued creation or to his creating those things out of nothing at each moment of their existence. So it's as if you were being created right now every millisecond, every nanosecond, God is creating you afresh. If the continued existence of created beings be wholly dependent on God's preservation, which it is, according to Hebrews 1, 3, then those things would drop into nothing upon the ceasing of the present moment without a new exertion of the divine power to cause them to exist in the following moment. See that? You would drop out of existence in the next moment unless a new exertion of divine sustaining power were brought to bear upon your existence. And he says that's equivalent to creating you at every moment. Hence we can see how the unity of personhood, for example, is owing to a moment-by-moment free choice on God's part to establish it. It is owing to nothing, finally, but God's choice that it be so. Therefore, personal accountability is owing I can't read my own writing here, um, to that arbitrary choice of God to maintain that unity between you today and you yesterday. All oneness that allows moral effects is a divine arbitrary establishment. That is, if there can be any moral effect between uh, the, the, the root and the branch or between the acorn and the tree or between the infant and the man or between the you of yesterday and the you of today, It is owing to an arbitrary establishment. There is no oneness but what depends on the arbitrary constitution of the Creator. Arbitrary means here it's owing solely to His will with no consultation of anybody else. When you act arbitrarily, you act without any consultation with anyone else. You do it solely on your own for your own private purposes. Now, God does that always. He does not, who has been his counselor or ever said anything to him? Romans 11:35. Nobody has ever counseled God. He is totally arbitrary. Now that word has some negative connotations that are not true here, and he'll address those in a minute. Who by his wise and sovereign establishment so unites these successive new effects that he treats them as one by communicating to them the properties, relations, circumstances, and so leads us to regard and treat them as one. It appears, particularly from what has been said, that all oneness, like the oneness of humanity, by virtue whereof pollution and guilt from past wickedness are derived, depends entirely on a divine establishment. So if there's any uh, unity or oneness between Adam and us, or us yesterday and us today, that would sustain a guilt there being here, it is owing entirely to a divine establishment. We're almost done with this. 
Therefore, he says, I am persuaded that no solid reason can be given why God, who constitutes all other created union or oneness according to his pleasure and for what purposes, communications, and effects he pleases, may not establish a constitution whereby the natural posterity of Adam proceeding from him, much as the buds and branches from the stock or root of a tree, should be treated as one with him. That's a long sentence. It says, I don't see any reason why God can't do in Adam and his posterity what he does between you and your consciousness yesterday or small um, tree and big tree. The derivation either of righteousness and communion in rewards or of loss of righteousness and consequent corruption. As I said before, all oneness in created things, whence qualities and relations are derived, depends on a divine constitution that is arbitrary. In every other respect, excepting that it is regulated by divine wisdom. Okay, now there's the connotation that he's trying to avoid, that arbitrary acts are not willy-nilly, without purpose and wisdom. Now let's stop here because this is the end, I think. Yeah, this is the end. This is the last quote. So this is the end of his argument. And if it doesn't work, this is it. This is his best shot. And, uh, if, and if it doesn't help you, then you either reject the doctrine or you plead the limitations of our minds and embrace the mystery. Those are your three options, I think. Or maybe there's another solution that, that, that he hasn't seen. So those are four options. Somebody else has solved it better. Edwards has, has helped us see the justice of it. Uh, you can't see the justice of it, but we believe it is just, so we can't see it, and we'll just leave it mysterious. Or I can't handle this doctrine, and I reject it. Those are your, seem to be your options. There may be some others I can think of. But, and then and the last one, we'll all hang on the trustworthiness that you accord to the scriptures and to those who, who write. You know, just, just let me put a little princess there about the authority of Scripture. I was reading John. Many of you are reading Gospel of John with me. And, uh, and it said, John bore witness that uh, he was the Son of God because he saw the dove come down and resting upon him. When I read that, I stopped. I had my two boys sitting here at breakfast table. I said, John bore witness. Guys, we have to decide whether he's trustworthy. Our faith is based on a witness. Jesus is not here in any tangible way that you could measure. How do you decide this life and death issue of whether to believe or not? And the answer is testimonies are given. Now John the Baptist said, I have testified that he is the Lamb of God, the Son of God who came to take away the sin of the world. How do you know whether to believe him? And then I added, and Jesus bore testimony, and John bore testimony, and Paul bore testimony, and Matthew bore testimony, and Luke bore testimony, and Mark bore testimony, and James bore testimony, and the writer of Hebrews bore testimony. Are they all liars? Are they all sick in the head? Are they all deluded? That's the question that it boils down to on things like this. And, and how do you decide things like that? How do you decide? How did the jury of O.J. Simpson decide? All they could do was listen to 
witnesses and decide they're not trustworthy. Or they are trustworthy. There's tokens there, either in things they say or the way things fit together or their character. You just, you listen for six, eight, what is it, nine, ten months? You listen and you decide. And lives hang in the balance. That's the way we live. That's real life. There's, there's nobody that's going to write in the sky the Bible is true. You've got to decide on the basis of witnesses who you're going to love. You, you need to go to Muhammad. I mean, if, if you're really wrestling with Islam is true or not, you go to the Koran and you listen to his testimony. Listen. And then you say, all right, you've got, you got this testimony of, of Muhammad and you got this testimony of John the Baptist and Mark and Matthew and Luke and John and Paul and James and Hebrews. And you read them and you try to see whether, how their testimony is fitting together and their character and, the, and whether this makes sense out of life. And, and you, uh, you, doctrinally, you stir in the Holy Spirit and he ultimately opens the eyes. But quite without mentioning that at all, what it really boils down to is which testimony do you believe? So I just mentioned that because when I mentioned that fourth option, rejecting this doctrine... I really hope that uh, you don't choose that option. And I hope you, you, you don't choose it because you have looked at the testimony of Scripture and God has granted you to see the beauty and compelling truthfulness of the witnesses there. Okay, now, the wisdom. He's claiming now that the arbitrary constitution of a unity between Adam and the human race such that the human race is guilty for what the, the Adam did on the analogy of me being guilty for what I did yesterday because the only link between me and yesterday is an arbitrary constitution of God that wouldn't have to be unless God made it be and therefore I'm guilty because God made me guilty because I, of what I did yesterday. You got that? The wisdom of that is seen in this. The wisdom which is exercised in these constitutions appears in two things. First, in a beautiful analogy and harmony and with other laws or constitutions, especially relating to the same subject. I'm not going to stop and dwell on that, but he means, I think, all these analogies he's been think, pointing out. And secondly, this is most important, the good ends obtained or useful consequences of such a constitution. You see what he's saying there? What he's saying is, God ordained a unity between Adam and his posterity such that we all are born sinners because there's something incredibly good that's going to come of that. There's some useful consequence in history in reality, in, in creation. Uh, the question is, if, if that is a good rule of thumb for us to follow, why shouldn't we make it a rule for God to follow, which Edwards is clearly not doing. Edwards is saying that if there are wise enough ends, goals, then constituting the whole of the human race as sinners through Adam was um, right to do. So the end justifies the means. 
And I would argue the end does justify the means for God. And uh, sometimes it does for us and sometimes it doesn't. <laughs> and the reason you have to say sometimes it doesn't is because we are not as wise as God. We simply cannot ignore the biblical statements of what to do and say, I don't care what God tells me to do in sex. I believe being happy is a legitimate end and therefore I'm going to commit adultery because my wife is a jerk and this woman loves me. She, she cares for me at work. And so I will not, I'm the end of my happiness and contentment and fulfillment. I feel so relaxed around her. I feel like I'm a person around her. I, I, I'm more productive at work around her. Not to have sexual union with her is, 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 art, is um, artificial and therefore I will justify this act in spite of what God says I should do by the end. Now the reason we shouldn't do that is because we're not smart enough. We're not smart enough. God has said, thou shalt not commit adultery. And when God says it, he has reasons that we may not be able to figure out. You come up with a long list of why this woman, you should divorce her and marry her and get on with this good relationship instead of doing what God said to do. That would be classic in justifying the means. And uh, it's wrong because we're not smart enough. If we were God, then we would, we would write our own rules. God wrote the rules. God wrote the rules because he knows what's best for humanity. And he did all of that in view of the end. So my, my basic answer, Wendy, is we're not God and we're not smart enough uh, to say that the end justifies the means. Now, the reason I said sometimes we do is because within certain moral constraints, you make all kinds of judgments about means because of ends. Investments are clearly an example. You know, you, you, you choose this portfolio over that portfolio because of this end that your counselor says is going to be more productive. I mean, there's hundreds of examples of how the end justifies the means within certain moral limitations. Spanking, pr precisely. That's, the end justifies the means. Nobody likes to hurt a child. In fact, if you drive across the bridge over there, it says never, 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 never hurt a child. Well, maybe. It depends on whether hurt is taken in a damaging way or whether hurt means cause pain. If it means cause pain, that's a false sign, and you, shouldn't, you should read the Bible instead of the sign. If it means damage a child, don't damage a child. Spanking is one of the most healthy ways not to damage a child's ego. Preaching at a child, putting a child in his room, causing a child to dwell endlessly on this little thing that he just did, that's damaging. A swat on a fleshy behind is, is what God said in Proverbs would get over it in a hurry. And I, I, I will come back and I will bear witness to this in 20 years if my boys are straight uh, and go on the narrow way, but... I'm almost there, and I'll bear witness that spanking is good. Now, this is not a close parenthesis. Stop. I shouldn't get off on that. I'll teach, I'll teach parenting one of these BITCs and let all my prejudices and hang out, and you can see them and do with them what you want. Spank is a good example. Another kind of question. 
Yeah, okay, let me see if I can restate that. That's an interesting question, and I don't know if I can answer it. Um, now, I forget how you started. S say the first sentence again. Oh, yeah. All the other sins. Okay, the question is, is there a difference? What's the difference between original sin and all the other sins that I commit or Adam commit? Because, if I'm understanding you correct, um, all the subsequent sins that Adam committed after eating of the fruit were not imputed to me, and all the sins that I commit as a dad are not to be, my son's not to be punished for those. That's taught in Scripture. Don't, don't punish the child for the sins of the father. Um, as I understand it best from Romans 5, it's that with Adam, who's unique, totally unique, I think it's, there's nothing, there's no counterpart in my life as a father to my son between Adam and his sons. What was unique was that God said, you eat this, you're going to die. And the you he had in mind there was you and everybody that comes from you, evidently. And he eats, and at that moment, there enters into his personhood sinfulness. That is what is transmitted. And we haven't even talked about the how of the transmission. We've just said, in general, it happens, and God has constituted it so that it happens. And, and all kinds of arguments as, as to whether it comes by, arbitrarily by God's design or through genes or whatever, that I don't know. But I would say the, the, the unique thing is the first act of disobedience was the entering into the human race, the humanity of a sinful disposition. And that is what we all get. And what flows out of it, in particulars, comes from every individual sinful disposition. Now, does that answer the question, or is, is it more complex than that? Well, I think, you, you're, you're making me to address that first question that I said I wasn't going to, and I'll try not to. Um, the question was, he had to have a disposition to sin before he did the, I'm going to be more precise, before he did the act of sin, all right? And I agree. And I would say his sinfulness was the emergence of that disposition. And if you ask me now, where did that come from? That's the question I said I'm not going to answer tonight. And how did it get there if he was all good? Did God make him bad? Did God set him up flawed? When God looked out on all the creation after man was created and said, this is very good, he winked. They're not simplistic. They're profound. Let me repeat them. Um, she was taught uh, growing up that if we had been there in Adam's place, we would have done the same thing. Now, I assume that statement is made to lessen the problem of our inheriting him because we would have fallen too. Okay. I assume that's true. I don't know. That's speculation to me. 
Second observation is more, much more profound, namely, had he not sinned, to use your words, we would be stuck in the Garden of Eden rather than in heaven. Now, there might be some conversation in this room as to whether that would be such a bad deal, since that was sort of heaven on earth. But biblically, God must have agreed profoundly with whoever taught you that, namely that heaven is better than that. Otherwise, he wouldn't have done it this way. God is, God, when it says in Romans 8, what, 23 or 4, subjected all things to futility in hope. Now that hope is what you're talking about. He subjected it to futility in hope because he had a bigger, better plan. Jesus coming into the world was better. The Holy Spirit coming on the world was better. Dying and going to be with Jesus is better. The new heavens and the new earth where the lion lies down with the lamb is better. It's all better than, would it, than it would have been had there been no fall. So that's what I think he means when he says there are good ends out there. Go ahead. Okay, that, that's, a, that's a really good observation. Now let me, let me think out loud about that. Did you all hear that? That it doesn't, seem, doesn't sit well with her to describe the continuity of my personhood from yesterday to today as an arbitrary work of God by moment-by-moment moment recreation, but rather seems to be rooted in my having been created in the image of God. Okay, did I restate it? Um, I don't disagree with what you said, uh, that my personhood is constituted by being in the image of God. I would just now press for definition of that. What does it mean to be in the image of God? I, I don't think it means in any way a... Uh, autonomous or self-sustaining being. That I'm in God's image so much that I'm like God in that way. I don't think I'm like God in being autonomous or self-sustaining. So that to, to, to declare my being in the image of God doesn't feel like it conflicts with what I've said. It doesn't feel like, oh, that's an alternative to being held in being moment by moment by God's arbitrary constitution. I would say, by arbitrary, and you're, I, I probably have really messed things up using the word arbitrary, because you're right, it, it sounds capricious, and capricious sounds pointless, and, and doesn't sound like, you know, well, one day you're a monkey, and one day you're, you know, an image of God, and yeah, that, it does, I should just scrap that word probably, and just say sovereign will of God, or something like that. That my being in the image of God moment by moment, depends on the sovereign, recreative work of God. I, that's what Edwards is saying, and I, I think he's right. But in, if you, the only tension I might feel between what you're saying and what I'm saying is if you think image of God implies some self-sustaining autonomy on my part that doesn't require God to hold me in being moment by moment and give to me at each of those moments, therefore, that quality called image of God, which I think is a certain moral quality and rational quality. And uh, uh, I have a question, but I want to make a comment on this. Of course, the sidebar on this true uh, principle that anyone else would have done the same thing and had a better. Actually, those two premises that you take are mutually exclusive. If any one of us in the same person had done the same thing, one of us along the line would have. 
They're mutually exclusive unless you allow the what if to stand, you know. What if it didn't happen? What if we were all there and he didn't sin and we didn't sin, then it would be. So anyway, that's okay. I, I believe that if I was the only one who sinned. Okay, now what's your question? Uh, we have simply I don't think so. I don't think so. I, if you, this is... I'm going, to only, I'm going to address this very briefly and then I'm going to jump to the weather because we only have a few minutes left and I promised that I would try to say something helpful tonight. <laughs> I, I hope this has been helpful for some of you. I, I don't believe that uh, anybody with a sin nature could go to heaven. That'd be the simplest answer uh, without having that redeemed. And if it can be redeemed, so can guilt. Okay. That's my simple answer. If, if, if God can figure out a way to bring babies who die in infancy under the blood of Jesus to solve their guilt problem, or to solve their sin nature problem, He can do the same thing to solve their guilt problem. Okay? And I think He can. I think He does. And, and I don't know how. I just have the principle of justice from Romans 1, uh, 19 to 21, that says we are accountable to the degree that we have access to the evidence we should believe, and babies don't have the access. That's my basic bottom line reason for believing in uh, God's salvation of infants, even though they are guilty of sin in Adam. Okay? He, he will redeem them. The guilt will not be swept under the rug. Okay, Let, let's, let's leave Edwards behind. Thank you so much for your patience in tolerating my love affair with Jonathan Edwards. Um, um, we have five minutes. Let me think what might be helpful in five minutes to do, just to give you a taste anyway for what we'll do next time. I think we're on for next week, and uh, I'll give you a flavor. We'll, we'll spend all next week probably on the weather, but just to give you, I'll give you a flavor of where we're going here. Praise the Lord from the earth, sea monsters in all deeps, fire and hail, snow and clouds, stormy wind fulfilling His Word. Okay? Stormy wind fulfilling the Word of God. Psalm 135. Whatever the Lord pleases, He does in heaven and in earth, in the seas and in all deeps. He causes vapors to ascend from the ends of the earth who makes lightnings. He makes lightnings for the rain. He brings forth wind from His treasuries. Jesus, they came to Him and woke Him saying, Master, we're perishing. Being aroused, He rebuked the wind and the surging waves. They stopped. They became He could do that with any hurricane, Hurricane Opal or Noel on her tail. Uh, could you say at Pensacola, stop. It would stop. So you just, how, how anybody, I don't want to be, I just don't get it. You've got to help me with this. I need to be a good teacher and preacher with people because I've got people in this church who don't believe this and I don't get it. I don't understand how people can try to absolve God from the control of the death of 500,000 Bangladeshis owing to wind and flood. Bangladeshis. 
I don't... God wasn't in that. God didn't have anything to do with that. I mean, I don't get it. I just don't understand where they're, how they conceive of the universe or how texts like this work. So um, we'll start next time with maybe with letting you help me understand because maybe there's some sophisticated ways of putting it that I just haven't read. Or Here's just one more and we'll stop. This is Elihu talking, Bob and I, we talked about whether you can quote from Job. You know, Job's got about 29 chapters of bad theology in it, so you've got to be careful how you use Job. And, and uh, I, I argue that Elihu is, is good, he's a good guy. Um, he's not one of the three bad guys, Eldad, Bildad, Eliphaz, and Zophar. He's not one of them. He, he gets it right. God does not rebuke El- Elihu in the last chapter. He rebukes those other three guys. And then, and then God is going to say the same thing that Elihu says, so that confirms it. For to the snow, he says, fall on the earth. So if it snows, if it wrecks your day, God did it. God kept you home. And to the downpour of the rain, be strong. If rain, if it rains so hard, it breaks the gutters off your roof. God did it. God did it. I mean, it, he says it. if he says to the rain, be strong. He seals the hand of every man that all men may know his work. Now, that I can't do in two minutes. The meaning of that verse I can't do in two minutes. But I will take it up next time. Then the beast goes into its lair and remains in its den. Out of the south comes the storm, and out of the north the cold. From the breath of God ice is made. Up under your shingles. And the expanse of the waters is frozen. Also with moisture he loads the thick cloud. He disperses the cloud of his lightning, and it changes direction, turning around by his guidance that it may do whatever He commands it on the face of the inhabited earth, whether for the correction or His world or His loving kindness, He causes it to happen. You think about the weather and all the problems that creates between now and the next time, and, and there are many other texts that will bring it to bear upon our lives soberly and gloriously as good news. But wrestle with me. I, I want to say this in a way that if you're struggling, you don't feel rejected. It, it took me decades of thinking about the Lord to have peace, I think, with His absolute sovereignty over our lives. And so don't feel like you've got to walk away from Bethlehem or stop wrestling if, if, if I look like I'm just you know, way out there and embracing something and you're just back and you never even raised this question before and it feels so threatening to images of God that you've had that you don't even know if you'll have anybody left to worship. So if that's your case, just hang in there. I want you to, to just work at it. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you'd be our teacher now. Apply these things to us. If Edwards is on the right track there, Help us to process that and be able to have more 
uh, reasonable contentment with the doctrine of original sin. But mainly, Lord, may we be on our faces acknowledging that we are truly corrupt before you apart from the glorious, redeeming, justifying grace of Jesus Christ. We go in his name now. Amen. Thank you. See you next week.